On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. On this episode, we're looking at Alan Arkish's long, unavailable musical comedy, Get Crazy, from 1983, so let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the pig, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm so offended you called me the pig. Oh, my oh really? God. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm great, Doug. I'm, I'm feeling really good. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Um, this is going to be awesome. Okay. I, I have to be honest, Liam, that might be as optimistic as I've ever heard you be on well, this usually podcast, or maybe just, any other. Usually just the sound of your voice is a real depressant, you know what I oh. mean? Like, just a mm. real, like, put you in a different space. Like, you could probably use it to, like, meditate on death, just put your voice on, and that would help. But today, for some reason, I'm just too buoyant to let it bring me down. Buoyant. I like that word, and I like to hear you say it. Liam, I do want to mention at the top of the show, I mentioned it on our most recent recording, I have uh, recently uh, recovered from COVID, so my voice might not be what it normally would be. Uh, so I hope you uh, all accept that if I start sounding uh, lost at any particular time, I'm going to blame that on the brain fog. That's one of the nice things about having COVID, Liam, is that I can just blame my shortcomings on brain fog for the foreseeable future. I mean, that's fine. I, I think you could have done that at any time and we would have just believed you. It's just from being from Newfoundland, right? Yeah. <laughs> just a, a built-in brain fog that I have. <laughs> Liam, uh, we're talking about Alan Arkush's Get Crazy on this episode. This is not a film that you saw before. Is that correct? No, I didn't even know it existed until we were covering it for this. When you when you were told, okay, this is the movie that we're going to be watching, and you do kind of that preliminary, hey, what's this movie all about? What were you expecting? Did you get what you expected from it? I think so. I mean... Um... I don't know that I had huge expectations in any one direction, but I will say there's a there's a bit of a mixture here. I saw someone describe it as a mad magazine come to life, and, sure. and I think that's mm-hmm. true. But there's, there's one or two moments that aren't quite totally ridiculous that I think are a little surprising for me. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think uh, – I think what I wanted was something silly and fun that didn't take itself too seriously, and that's what I got. Um, I, I maybe the thing that maybe surprised me the most was the inclusion of Malcolm McDowell because yeah. I thought that was not going to work, and instead I found it really charming. So all right, well we'll we'll get into that in just a little bit, but before that, I want to introduce today's guest. Our guest today is a writer, filmmaker, and host of the wonderful Junk Filter podcast. It's Jesse Hawkins. Jesse, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is my return uh, engagement to the podcasting world of Doug and Liam because That's right. one of my very first podcasting guest appearances was on your Eric Roberts show. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Do you remember what you watched for that episode, Jesse? We watched uh, a Martin Lawrence movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
God, which one was it, though? Was it Double Jeopardy? No, the Double Jeopardy is the one. <laughs> I don't think that is a Martin Lawrence movie. We watched what? a Larry the Cable Guy movie and a Martin Lawrence movie. Oh, my God. Boy, this was a long time ago, still when we were doing double features on the yeah. uh, Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man <laughs> podcast. But Jesse... Uh, National we... Security, I believe. National Security, that's what it was. Lucky us. And a Larry the Cable Guy movie. And then another really shitty one with Larry the Cable Guy, but Eric Roberts was the villain in, in at least one of them. It's funny that we, Liam and I, have been doing Eric Roberts for so long at this point that I can tell you, not only could I not necessarily remember the titles of those movies, I certainly couldn't remember the plot. I think I've lost a lot of the details of some of those movies. Liam, if I had to tell you National Security, do you remember what that movie is about whatsoever? No, not even no? a little bit. Do you remember that Martin Lawrence is in it? I remember that he is in a movie with Eric Roberts. But as far as the name of that movie, uh, sure, National Security, uh, Jimmy Goes to the Store. I don't know what the name of the movie is. I just know they're in one together. Jesse, we're not here today to talk about Eric Roberts as much as I'd love to, once again, with you. We're here to talk about Dick Miller, a far more respectable actor (laughs) in a lot of different ways. Uh, Now, I didn't ask you here specifically because of any knowledge of your love or interest in Dick Miller whatsoever. Are you a Dick Miller fan? Is there a role that you connect Dick Miller with? Of course I'm a Dick Miller of fan. Of course you are. What a wonderful screen presence he was. What I liked about Dick Miller was uh, he had a very, very limited range. Almost mm-hmm. always he was Dick Miller in every movie that he was in. I think like Bucket of Blood is one of the few movies where he's actually I was just else. I was just thinking that, that exact same thing. <laughs> it's interesting that one of his iconic roles are, are, are probably one of his least likely roles. Yeah. And and uh, the road not taken too because like he and Jack Nicholson were both like superstars of Roger Corman's stable, sure. mm-hmm. and uh, Nicholson was just as weird a presence as Dick Miller was, but he turned it into superstar status. Whereas maybe Dick Miller didn't have those ambitions in mind. <laughs> On the other hand, Dick Miller worked all the time. Combination of what a great screen presence he was and how much people loved him and wanted to find something for him and everything. He's been in a few Alan Arkish films, for instance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was like a sort of a fucked up everyman was the way yes. I would sort of describe mm-hmm. him. And when it comes to the movie that if you say Dick Miller to me, the, the role that jumps to mind is him in After Hours as yes. the diner owner. Mm-hmm. And he has that wonderful immortal shot where uh, Rosanna Arquette is leaving the diner with Griffin Dunn and she just spins around and blows him a kiss. Yes. And he catches it in the air in a very, very uh, charismatic way. Uh, that's a shot I will always remember from movies. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's such, that's again, one of the, it's probably one of the more prototypical Dick Miller roles in the sense that he's there for one scene. He makes that strong impression. You never forget that face. I mean, I, even if you mm-hmm. are a listener of this, I can't imagine you're listening to a Dick Miller podcast without knowing who he is. But certainly mm-hmm. you would have known his face if you grew up, particularly in the 80s and 90s. You would really get a sense of who that is. We've talked about After Hours on this podcast already with the great Julia Marchesi. And that moment is one that is kind of iconic in in the Dick Miller kind of pantheon that we've gone through so far. And you're right. It's one of those. It's funny that that it kind of, I don't know if it's a generational thing. But in terms of the roles that people most connect with Dick Miller that we've talked to so far, Liam, I, I think it would probably be that most people say Gremlins. I think that's the one that that's kind of number one. But it's, I think as I've, I've grown older, uh, After Hours is the one that sticks out most to me. Uh, Jesse, you have a podcast. It's called the Junk Filter Podcast. Uh, it's beloved by all. That's my understanding. Uh, I listen to it myself. I enjoy it very, very much. Talk about the the 
uh, a the reason that you decided to start a podcast, and what is the sort of the uh, modus operandi for Junk Filter? Well, Junk Filter is a show that I started during the pandemic when we were all locked down sure. and uh, unable to leave our homes. And podcasts were a real lifeline for me during that phrase, that mm-hmm. phase. Like you know, um, I, all these people that I liked. Uh, and hearing their voices and getting to sort of simulate conversation, you know, sure. uh, you're you're so cut off from getting to talk to people. And I was always chatting with very funny people on Twitter because of my, you know, reputation as a bomb thrower <laughs> and uh, troll master. <laughs> uh, you know, so I've I've made a lot of friends on Twitter, and we were always in, in the DMs talking. And uh, at some point in like October of 2020, I started thinking that I want to do this too. So I taught myself GarageBand, I bought a new (laughs) laptop, I bought a microphone, (laughs) and uh, I decided to start doing a show that was basically a way of paying it forward and uh, giving to others the sort of thing that I'd gotten. Like, uh, we all need to hear funny people chatting about, you know, popular culture and film and music and and, and politics and jokes. That, That was sort of the four main ideas. So I just started inviting people I like on Twitter in the world of politics and film and music, and I started putting together this show. It's been a real joy to see it kind of evolve. All yeah. right? I mean, and you're right. I mean, I didn't really think about it being sort of a, one of those pandemic-based projects, but it's, uh, it's amazing that, like, you have such a consistent voice on social media. Um, and it's so funny, actually, you know, I haven't talked to you very much. Uh, it's only ever been our podcast recordings. But you're such a genial, you know, friendly person. And I'm not saying that your social media presence doesn't reflect that, but it can be a little combative. I think that's probably a reputation that you've cultivated a little bit. How have you found kind of uh, translating that into a podcast? Well, I like, you know, there are th- what I'm trying to do ultimately, even if I sound combative on Twitter when I like dunk on Marvel and dunk on sort of, you know. Um, you have a reputation, Jesse. It's all I'm saying. <laughs> I know. And, and sometimes whenever I get in trouble for anything that I say, I find out that I have a lot of people who don't like me. Aww. One of the things that, uh, but that's okay. Because one of the things that I try to do with the podcast is to sort of not ne- be nearly as mean and uh, and <laughs> bitter as I may uh, come across sometimes on Twitter with my jokes. A lot of times as well, when I'm being bitter and, and uh, hostile on Twitter, it's what I'm trying to do more than anything is to make people who also feel the same way about our culture laugh and feel yeah. less alone. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually trying to make enemies. I'm trying to amuse people. <laughs> It works for me. And, you know, I think any anybody that takes a stance on any or any position, particularly with uh, when it comes to things that are beloved or that have a strong kind of I was going to cult is sort of a loaded word these days. But, you know, Marvel fandom might be something that that leads to a lot of intense negative feelings towards you. When it, to me, mm-hmm. when, I'm, when I see you write about these sort of things, I'm like, oh, Jesse's playing around. To me, there's, there's clear nuance to what you're doing. And also, mm-hmm. when, you, when you push someone's buttons and they get so unreasonably angry over something that is clearly not that important, then I just want to see how far you can push them. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for noticing. Because, uh, again, I'm trying to make people who also find this stuff stultifying 
and you know think that it's a threat to uh, the overall broadness of the culture that we get. I find that it's so concentrated and limited in this sort of corporate entertainment. Sure. That uh, and and the other thing is that if people love this stuff so much, then they shouldn't care if somebody. Yes, is, exactly. Especially like when it. it's the dominant pop cultural. <laughs> it's, it's not going away, right? It doesn't know. matter how many times Jesse Hawkins tweets on on Twitter about how much he dislikes Marvel movies. It's still. There's one coming out next week and the week after, right? Yeah. I yeah. think people are sensitive about it in the sense that – so this is my poor sure. psychoanalysis of it. But in my, in my mind, I think they kind of know a little bit. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people I interact with who act really sensitive kind of know that maybe the thing that they enjoy – yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it's it, it's funny. Like I don't go after Marvel stuff or whatever, but there are things that I've made fun of that people get very sensitive about for me. So like, mm-hmm. I have stopped commenting on sports because mm-hmm. sports fans, much like much like very religious people, sports fans believe at any moment there's going to be a program against them and they'll be lined up against the wall. And I'm like, <laughs> there's more money in sports than anything else in the world. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. this is a social force, and it's weird that I don't like it. So I'm saying, hey, I don't like this thing. And people go, yeah, you would say that. Oh, you're such an elitist. Oh, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. I'm like, sorry, I just don't like this thing. You know, Or uh, mm-hmm. people get very upset when I suggest that maybe food from McDonald's is not actually delicious. <laughs> and then people are like, "Oh, well, you're some sort of rich nose there." I I prefer other bad fast food. I'm just, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not. I'm not trying to be a kale eating. You know, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I love kale, but you know what I mean? Like, I, it's I, I I I do actually, but uh, but but it's a superfood, Liam. <laughs> but but McDonald's like makes me physically sick. That's what I'm expressing here. I, sure. I it's Fair not enough. it's not like I'm above a hamburger. It's that this food makes me feel ill. But it's all someone always wants me to know that this is because I went to college and I should get fucked. And I'm like, okay, sure. Whatever. You are an elitist, Liam. That is one of the things that I do kind That's of define probably true. You That's probably true, as. I guess. But mm-hmm. despite you being an elitist, and this is you just watch this transition now, you do enjoy rock and roll music. Yeah, Liam. I do. In fact, you used to, uh, this isn't uh, connected directly to rock, but you also like punk music. That's something we've established on this show a few times. Um, and in fact, you used to be the lead singer of a punk band, Liam. Do you remember this? Oh, my God. <laughs> It has been a while since you brought this up, so yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, we can we can yeah. get on this. Yeah, so, and and one of the great things about your podcast, Jesse, is that it covers a lot of different kinds of pop culture. But one of the things it covers is music. Mm-hmm. I have to be honest, Jesse. One of the things I always think about when I think about you is an anecdote you told us when you were on Eric Roberts about being in the audience for the Reflex video by Duran Duran. Am I remembering that correctly? You're not remembering it correctly. No, I no. wasn't there. No. But- I identified that it was Maple Leaf Gardens that's you in did. that music video. Well, in my brain, you're there. And I think I've seen that video several <laughs> times since. Fun. And I think I've told people, you know who's in that audience? <laughs> you know, two friends of mine are in that video. Like, well, there's why a don't shot you give them a shout out right I know. <laughs> Yeah, I should. Hey, Liz and Lisa. Nice to see you in the Duran well, Duran video. The next time I watch that video, uh, which is shockingly a frequent thing in my household, I'll tell my wife, do you know who's in that video? Liz and sorry, who was the other person? Lisa. (laughs) Liz and Lisa, friends of Jesse Hawkins. Pretty sure it was them. I've never asked them, but I was positive it was them. But I wasn't at that show, I'm sad to say. Well, I mean, you know, print the legend. That's what I say. Uh, And (laughs) Jesse, you're a music fan as well. Am I right on that? Oh, yeah. And you podcast sometimes with musicians and you talk mm-hmm. about music. 
this movie that we're going to be talking about today, Get Crazy, is a very music-focused movie. In fact, mm-hmm. you can probably describe it as a concert film, even though it's, it kind of hits a lot of different genres. I want to ask the both of you, because of your interest in music, about what is the most rock and roll movie. Now, this could be a concert film. It could be a documentary about a band. It really could be anything. What is a movie that captures the spirit of rock and roll the best? And Liam, this is one of those moments where it's better to have read the outline ahead of time so you could prepare an answer. So I'm just going to go to you first. Liam, Liam, what's a movie that's pure rock and roll? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a man. Am I? Doesn't actually, it sound cheesy when I say what, what's rock and roll? Like as opposed to if what's a punk movie? Liam, like you like probably Repo Man and that sort of shit. What yeah. what's a rock and roll movie that you enjoy? I you know that's not actually a bad question. But I oh thank you. <laughs> but I don't know that I have a great answer because I I the 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 idea that there is a like essentially rock and roll thing is is hard for me. I don't know that I identify with that particularly well you know what no I mean? one's gonna no one's going to be upset at you if you say something i know but no right i don't now. mean that i don't care if people get upset. fuck that okay it doesn't matter that's I mean, right fuck them that's right i mean more like i don't know that i have a great option and i do wish i had read the outline because i didn't know this question was coming uh-huh. <laughs> uh essentially rock oh no i don't want to hear you think i want you to say something oh fuck liam you might remember that i was on an episode of your podcast cinepunks which you are, focuses yes on both uh, music and movies, but focuses more, I guess, on punk music, as is in the name. But we talked about some rock and roll movies. Do you remember what movies we watched uh, for that particular episode? Uh, <laughs> One was Monterey Pop, about the Monterey Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, and I do love Monterey Pop, but, you know, it has... I, it's hard to say that's the the essential rock and roll. Actually, I'll go with the other one as the essential rock and roll movie that we watched. The uh, oh, what's it called? What was it? Was it Gimme Shelter? Yeah, Gimme Shelter. <laughs> See, because I remember this stuff <laughs> because it's so because it's so tragic and embarrassing. I'll go with that as the uh, ultimate rock and roll movie. Well, it doesn't sound like your heart's in this, to be totally honest with you, Liam. But I just want to ask before I move over to Jesse, who's going to have plenty of time to think of a better answer than what you've given us, <laughs> which fine. is that I don't care. do you like concert movies, Liam? Um, I've only seen a few, and I what. Don't... Uh, yeah, I've only seen a few, and I, I don't love any of them. I, you know, I like to monitor what? pop a good deal. Yeah, I'm not a big concert movie person. I'd rather be at a concert than watch a movie of it. Sorry. What about Stop Making Sense? Do you like Stop Making Sense? It's okay. Yeah. Hmm. It's a much weaker response. I'd almost have preferred that you disliked it than you just to say it's okay. Oh, fu- <laughs> fuck Stop Making Sense. No, if, I, I actually find myself defending Stop Making Sense a lot because I, a lot of people what? I a lot of people I know think that the ultimate cornball thing is the Talking Heads. Like that is their when they're like, what's 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 like people like. The example people give of cornball music NPR fans like, it's the talking heads. And I'm always like, that's not fair. They're really good. And I love Stop Making Sense. Uh, but, like, it, it's just Your opinion not... is getting stronger towards the positive as you're Well, because about. I'm so offended at their disregard for the talking heads, I get really defensive. But I actually rewatched. So that's where I was going, Doug, is I rewatched it recently. And I like a lot of it. But towards the end, I do get a little a little bored. I get yeah, you're watching, bored. you're like, when are they going to get to the Tom Tom Club? That's what I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do like the Tom Tom Club. Anyway, sure sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go, you know what? Go to Jesse. He's got yeah, things no, to say. Yeah, no, believe me. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> Jesse, 
no matter what you answer this question with, it's going to be better than what Liam just said. Uh, so don't feel any pressure whatsoever. What is a great rock and roll movie? Well, I'm going to give you three. And you oh, already please. mentioned Perfect. one of them. Perfect. You already mentioned Stop Making Sense. I think that that is the greatest of the concert movie genre mm -hmm. in terms of rock and roll. Uh, you know, I know that uh, some people may quibble that the Talking Heads aren't exactly rock and roll, but I think the spirit of rock and roll and, and rock music and live performance is all there in that film. Absolutely. I also love what I love most about that movie is that it uh, pretty much ignores the audience. It's you know what I was just going to stage. say. I was going to ask you what makes a great <laughs> concert movie, and number one on my list is just ignore that the fucking audience is there outside yeah. of just hearing them in the background. Yeah. Like, the, the cameras are in the crowd, but we don't ever see the crowd. I don't think there's one shot of them. Mm -hmm. Not until um, the very end, I think. The, like yeah, the maybe very at the very, very last end uh, shot of the movie. But I think that... The, and and uh, that was a, a huge formative experience on me when I was a teenager, because I saw it in a movie theater uh, when it was first released. And I saw it at the Bloor, and they cranked the sound so loud that my <laughs> ears were ringing at the end uh, for about... Uh, the rest of that afternoon, I think, because I went to a matinee. But it blew my mind. I think that one of the great rock and roll movies is This Is Spinal Tap. Sure. Uh, even though it's a mockumentary and everything, I think that it, it, it captures in a funny way what we love about uh, the rock and roll ethos and mythos and, uh, and deconstructs it. And the other thing that I marvel about Spinal Tap is it's such a perfect movie and then it's like 86 minutes long. Yes. <laughs> or not even, it might even be like 82 minutes long. It, it's Just also amazing. Get in there and get out. If That's you've ever seen the like it. the work print of yes. Spinal Tap, which is like like two and a half hours, three hours long, and it just has so much footage, lots of great stuff. But yeah, you're right. The key to that movie working like it does is just how edited it is. Mm -hmm. Do you know that they're they're threatening to do a new Spinal Tap movie? I with do Rob know Reiner? this. Threatening is an interesting word that you've used there, <laughs> Jesse. T tell me more about your your concerns about this new Spinal Tap. Well, you can't step in the same river twice for one reason. Like, Spinal Tap is what it is. It doesn't necessarily need to be revisited. And sure. I've never liked a Rob Reiner movie as much as This is Spinal Tap. So Fair. him coming back and doing it again, I don't know why. Unless mm. they're going to make it like The Irishman and have it about, like, <laughs> <laughs> these rock guys who are way too old to be doing this, you know, I, or, or what. But we don't really need another Spinal Tap movie. And, and in fact, we've gotten uh, Spinal Tap follow-ups that Absolutely. history has forgotten. Mm -hmm. yeah, On the other I, hand, these are such funny people. And uh, I would like to think that if they've got one more idea to do something, that it's probably going to be worth seeing. So I, I kinda, I I'm, kinda... a little, I'm a little cautious about it because it has such a capacity for going wrong. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, Liam? I'm kind of sufficient with a mighty wind as the Spinal Tap yes. update. Like, I don't need anything after that. Yeah. I, I, I am of two minds of it, certainly, uh, that I, I am such a fan of the original. I have liked some of the stuff that they've done since, uh, even the return of Spinal Tap, there are moments in that. And I also find that when, like, I don't know if either of you have ever heard the uh, Spinal Tap commentary on the Criterion oh, yes. version of This is Spinal Tap. And I find that really funny, and just when they're just kind of fucking around, but then that's such a low-pressure situation, right? And it is meant to be sort of a throwaway thing even though i enjoy it so much so it's it's to me i'm like i would like to get more of that but mm -hmm. i worry about 
how it's going to reflect on, you know, backwards, basically, right? I mean, I don't think it'll make me enjoy This Is Spinal Tap any less, but um, I would hate to, it to be sad. I guess that's my biggest concern. <laughs> I've seen them recently, you know, some of their live performances. It's not that they're sad, it's just that they're really old, because mm. that's what happens to people. And I don't want necessarily my final thought of this incredible, you know, fake band to be something that makes me... I'd rather be wistful than sad, I yeah. guess, is the, yeah. Yeah. the where I'm coming from it. What's but, your third movie? Oh, sorry, Jesse, please continue. No, well, and I wanted to say that there is comic potential in uh, the oldie circuit. And yeah, being absolutely. trapped in, uh, you know, like having, the, you know, all these elderly fans and you're on stage doing the same song that you've been doing for your entire career that you hate now. And, you know, like there's a lot of comic potential for this movie. I also worry about I don't about know if that's being what like they're a, up to. I worry it'll be like a series of throwback jokes. Like it'll just be like... Oh, remember this? Oh, it's another sign that says ventriloquist, you know. I, I, yeah. <clears throat> I just also, my sense of humor is like Spinal Tap was taking shots. This is Spinal Tap, was taking shots at guitar music when it was on top. And now the guitar music is almost entirely dead. Sure. I would like to not make fun of it. I would like to just like, <laughs> let's ignore it for a while and give it a chance to get its shit back together. And then who knows? Maybe guitar music will come back. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? And my third uh, choice for the most rock and roll movie it may sound a little bit unusual, but I would say that Goodfellas is number three for me. Interesting. It, uh, because of the use of rock music in that movie sure. to sort mm-hmm. of set uh, to set the tone, to give you an idea of the emotional state of the actors, the lyrics that comment on the actual uh, proceedings or sure. ironically comment on them, the energy of rock music and the, uh, you know, the 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 paranoia that is uh, that whole sequence of the the his final day as a free man where he's driving around uh, with a, that medley of all the uh, great rock music that's playing while Absolutely. he's like freaking out to me that's like that that is somebody who understands the power of rock and roll and it's and it's uh, presence in our culture uh, and uh, you know it it's so the music is so important to that film it's like a second level of narration. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, you know, Martin Scorsese is someone who pioneered that use. I mean, I think even Mean Streets would be a great uh, example of, of a rock and roll movie. And, you know, it, I guess it's also in in his DNA a little bit. One of the answers I probably would have given, even though I know a lo- not everyone loves it, is The Last Waltz, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite concert movies. Um, and, you know, it's a very inconsistent movie in a lot of ways and maybe a little too Robbie Robertson forward, but uh, it is still a movie that I return to quite a bit. Uh, Liam, I'm going to give you one more chance. What's a rock and roll movie? doesn't have to be a concert movie. See how Jesse, he came up with Goodfellas, such a great answer. You got one more in the chamber. Bro, you're asking me about something I literally don't care about. So I don't you don't know. like rock and roll, man? Not really. I mean, th- didn't we cover this when you were on Cinepunks and we were yeah. talking about Monterey Pop and Give Me Shelter? It. And about how most of the bands featured on there I don't give a fuck about. And like, You, you loved Ravi Shankar, though. No, I didn't. It's uh, th- That's why I was saying that I can't vote for Monterey Pop because Ravi Shankar makes it very not rock and roll for like oh, 15 minutes at the end. Um you know, I, I I'll go with my uh, I'll still go with a documentary because one of my favorite documentaries uh, that I think features in my mind uh, at certain points the spirit of rock and roll is actually Summer of Soul because for sure. me Absolutely. that sort of public expression of defiance uh, and, and the fact that it like all of my favorite rock and roll is shit that no one talked about for a lot of time and now suddenly we're talking about it again that very much is like more my vibe than like I don't know the Rolling Stones or some bullshit. My favorite rock and roll movie is 
Jeff Stein's The Kids Are All Right About The Who, a mm-hmm. uh, movie I've watched many, many times. I think I've spoken previously that I huh. was a big fan of The Who when I was a kid. I feel that that movie, not only does it envelop the things I like most about rock and roll music, yeah. but it also, you could see it as the blueprint for This Is Spinal Tap because of the ridiculousness that's also yeah. on display. So to me, it's like the perfect combination of I, the ridiculousness. I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I've ever Well, seen maybe you should stop recording this podcast. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was a formative movie for me. It was very important for me when I was a teenager, uh, especially as someone in Newfoundland. This might surprise both of you. Growing up as a teenager in Newfoundland, I didn't feel like my life was very rock and roll at all. <laughs> <laughs> so it was important for me to have that, that kind of outlet. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a really important movie for me. I don't know if... Get Crazy would have been as important to me. Certainly, uh, Alan Arkish's film Rock and Roll High School was very important when I discovered it in my kind of late teens, early 20s. I probably came a little bit late to that as well, just like I came a bit late to punk music, Liam, which maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. I think what we'll do is we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about 1983's Get Crazy. Now you can get everything you ever wanted in a movie, in one movie. You can get high, get low, get flipped, get a glow, get hot, get bizarre, get a plane, get a car, get out! Get in. Get religion. Get sin. Get caressed. Get undressed. Get molested. Get arrested. Evening, officer. But most of all, get crazy! Get it while it's hot. Get it if you're not. Come and get it. Get crazy! What Animal House did to college, an airplane did to flying, Get Crazy does to rock and roll. Get Crazy, coming soon to a theater near you. Mega promoter Colin Beverly plans to sabotage the New Year's 1983 concert of small-time operator Max Wolf. Wolf's assistants Neil Allen and Willie Loman find romance while trying to save the drugs, violence, and rock and roll from Beverly's schemes. It's 1983's Get Crazy, directed by the great Alan Arkish. Uh, we've already mentioned his film uh, Rock and Roll High School being kind of a formative film for me. Also the director of Death Sport, Heartbeeps, Caddyshack 2. Uh, and a lot of television work, actually, after that, including the Temptations uh, TV movie in the late 90s. A very varied and interesting career, and of course, he came from the school of Roger Corman alongside Joe Dante, a person he's had a long-term relationship with. In fact, if I remember correctly, I believe Joe Dante had to take over the filming of Rock and Roll High School after Alan Arkish had a heart attack or some other medical ailment. Just a, a long-time collaboration between the two, but we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Get Crazy Notoriously 
unavailable on DVD or Blu-ray for a very, very long time. Has something to do with music rights. Uh, and, uh, I, I mean, you can see if you watch this movie, there is a lot of licensed music in it. Uh, it finally uh, hit Blu-ray in December of 2021. So now it is uh, regularly available. Written by Danny Apatashu, who also wrote Hollywood Boulevard and The Student Teachers for Roger Corman. Henry Rosenbaum, uh, who wrote the 1970 adaptation of The Dunwich Horror with Dean Stockwell, as well as the 1989 Sylvester Stallone vehicle, Lockup, and David Taylor, who also wrote with Henry Rosenbaum. Uh, he wrote the Gene uh, Wilder, Gilda Radner film, Hanky Panky, as well as worked on a series of TV movies, including a Ken Russell movie called Dog Boys, which features Tia Carrera, Dean Cain, and Brian Brown, described as corrupt officers track men for sport with dogs. Liam, a Ken Russell-directed movie about hunting people for sport. What do you think? I'm in. I'll watch it. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do this. Hey, you know what? It sounds exciting right up until the point I read the name Dean Kane. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's a chance that he gets ripped apart by some dogs. Also uh, you, true. You are speaking my language right now, Jesse. Uh, <laughs> Get Crazy features the wonderful Malcolm McDowell, as well as Alan Garfield, a young Daniel Stern, uh, Gail Edwards, Miles Ch- Chapin, Ed Bagley Jr., lots of musicians, including uh, Lou Reed leaving from Fear, as we've already mentioned, Bobby Sherman and Fabian are here as well. Yeah. Lots of familiar faces all the way down. And also, if you're familiar with the Roger Corman films of this time period, we also, of course, get Paul Bartel, Mary Warnov, and, of course, Dick Miller. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit before we get into the details, into the weeds. Got to get your feelings on this movie generally, starting with our guest today, Jesse Hawkins. Jesse, this was your first time watching Get Crazy. What did you think? Well, it, it, it grew on me a little bit. <laughs> I remember seeing... Uh, I was very familiar with Get Crazy because of the ridiculous uh, cover art on the VHS yes. box. <laughs> and uh, with, what is it, a girl riding a rocket guitar or something? Yeah. I'm trying uh-huh. to recall. <laughs> I, I it's that Actually, Jesse, if you want to get into more detail, right at the top of this document that we have right here, there's a, the, oh, yeah. the image okay. is right there. You're, you're exactly right. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so there's a chick uh, in sort of, uh, you know, 80s... Uh, She's got the Olivia Newton-John hair. She's got a drink, I guess a drink in her hand. Yeah, it looks like a drink. Let's, uh... And she's she's riding a horse rocket guitar. And there's fireworks everywhere. And, uh, you know, and, and it has the amazing tagline. It says, get crazy, dot, 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 and say goodbye to your brain. <laughs> Does it live up to that tagline? <laughs> yes. I think one of the reasons why the movie was starting to grow on me was because I felt my IQ dropping <laughs> over the course of the film. I, I thought actually one thing that I liked about this movie was the uh, use of intertitles throughout sure. the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Arkish keeps uh, coming up with these sort of blackouts uh, comedy scenarios that are often introduced with some text uh, that uh, like there are some dream sequences and there's you know when certain characters arrive in the scene it identifies them sure. um, you know one movie that it kind of reminded me of it doesn't do a lot of fourth wall breaking but it does remind me a little bit of the movie hell's a poppin i don't know oh, if sure you of course saw absolutely that. how uh, that movie is sort of a play on movies and genre tropes sure this movie didn't have the full commitment of a movie like airplane it wasn't a genre parody, but it did have uh, Airplane's propensity to sort of throw a whole bunch of jokes at you, and, and some of them will stick and some of them won't. Mm-hmm. And though I never laughed out loud very much at anything that was happening, it just seemed like a genial, amiable, dumb movie to watch. And <laughs> I will say that the restoration of this movie a little goes a long way for me. Like, 
uh, it looked really nice. Like, I mm -hmm. appreciated that they really worked on color correcting this film and making it look as good as it could possibly look. And one thing that really unlocked the movie for me was uh, you had mentioned that Alan Arkush had made a couple of comments about this movie on uh, Letterboxd. Yes. Unusual to see a filmmaker talking about his own movie on Letterboxd. But he said that he loved the, he said, um, another color correct for the Blu-ray. It looks so good now. Sharp, punchy, 50s-style Tashlin Technicolor. And to me, that was like, yes, that's what this movie reminds me of. It's a connection to those kind of crazy Frank Tashlin live-action cartoons, mm -hmm. right down to the color scheme. It's super bright and saturated color. It's interesting to get that level of insight. I mean, actually, Alan Arkush is, is quite... Uh, um... He, he's on Letterboxd quite a bit, writing about films, not just his own. But you're right. What an odd place to find that level of insight. And it's funny because he has three different, quote unquote, reviews for the film, which are basically like updated. You can see that the, the, the chronology of it as the movie is in his memory. And then it goes to, oh, now it's released in a form that I'm happy with. And it's, it's, it was very nice to see, especially because you can tell, unlike a lot of, maybe a lot is, is an unfair way to put this, but I don't know if you've noticed this, Jesse, but sometimes when directors get a little older, it kind of feels like they don't watch movies anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they just stop their interest. It's just, I mean, maybe not all films, but certainly modern films. But Alan Arkish seems like the kind of guy who still keeps up on what's coming out, which is, I, you know, even as, as much as I give Paul Schrader a lot of grief, he's a guy who still seems to care about movies, which is more than I can say about some of his contemporaries. One thing that I liked about Arkish's takes on uh, the restoration of Get Crazy is that he's he does mention that he doesn't sit around and watch his old work, which sure. I can relate to. The uh, When you've been working on a film... Uh, and you've watched it five million times, making it. You, basically, you know it's finished when you never want to look at it ever again. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so when you have uh, a, some distance from it, uh, Arkish probably figured that this movie was a lost cause. I mean, sure. we can get into the uh, the details of why this movie didn't really find an audience. He he had a lot of trouble with his producers, I believe. Um, so maybe he had given up all hope of ever seeing a fully restored high quality uh 2k transfer of the film in his lifetime so i delighted in um reading about a filmmaker who's happy to see his work being rediscovered yeah 100 percent. liam also a first watch for you you've given us some hints on your feelings now you dislike rock and roll that's something that you've made very clear mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you are punk 100 through and through uh I don't so know about that but sure well yeah. i mean you're you're pure punk that's what i tell people <laughs> Stop it, stop it. <laughs> uh, Liam, what were your thoughts on Get Crazy? Um, at first, oh. at first, when it started in its pacing around the, the jokes, you know, as, sure. as mm -hmm. Jesse said, that sort of the, the, the airplane style, like, we're, we're doing jokes, we're doing jokes, we're doing jokes. My immediate response <laughs> was like, fuck, I don't know that I want to watch this right now. It just didn't feel like it was going to click for me. Uh, but, you know, after a while, I just kind of got into the groove of it, and I found it really fun and silly. And, you know, I'm not a big, like, drug humor guy, but I don't know. It, it, it worked for this. Um, and I really found uh, Malcolm McDowell as the uh, former punk-turned-rock icon who is, like, the worst person ever. Loved that. 
aspect of the movie, really was into it. Uh, so I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it took me a while to get on board with Rock and Roll High School. I think because the first sure. time I saw Rock and Roll High School, it wasn't that punk. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, I really thought, like, Ramon's movie, ah, here we go. And then it, it wasn't that. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, but this is a fun movie. I really enjoy this. This is a good time. I think I went into this, because I didn't even know it was really Rock and Roll High School, thinking it was going to be a goofy comedy, which it is. And then... Um, thinking that some of the music stuff in it was also kind of fun, you know, and silly, and and I like that. I, it's definitely a surface movie. It's not like a oh my gosh, now I'm gonna have to watch this like once a year, you know. It didn't like sure. impact, but you know, for a movie I knew nothing about that easily could have been a real bummer. I thought it was super entertaining and 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 charming, and I don't know. There's just a lot to like about it, uh, and and I feel like it's to me the exact movie you want to come on when you're at like a marathon, like. Let's say sure. you're, uh, Absolutely. Uh, a genre marathon and it's midnight and you're like, whatever's on next better be fucking fun. I think this would be a good choice. I think this would really get a crowd jazzed up. Uh, and that and that's how I felt watching it. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much deep to say about it. I will say the, the leaving performance was mostly for me kind of cornball. But sure. I thought having him sing the song that everyone sings was like... <laughs> Hoochie Coochie Man. <laughs> him doing Hoochie Coochie Man, I was like, all right, Lee Ving's got something. There's something there. That's kind of funny. I, I'm kind of into that. So that, that part I appreciated. Lee, I might want to stick with you for a second, talking specifically about the music in this film. It's a very music-heavy movie. It's, uh, as we mentioned, maybe one of the reasons that it hasn't been seen uh, so much until recently. Uh, Knowing that there's a kind of a variety of rock and roll styles, there's some blues here, there's almost some new wavy stuff on display, uh, we've got Sparks doing the theme song, any of the music in this film specifically stick out outside of leaving doing Hoochie Coochie Man? <laughs> I mean, I appreciated that whatever Malcolm McDowell was supposed to be, it kind of just sounded like a glammy pub rock thing. You know, it like, was nice that he was doing his own vocals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the vibe of it felt very much like um, this is going to be weird for people who don't know this history. But just before Oi became a thing, sure, the 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 the, the, the style that soccer fans liked was referred to as pub rock, and it was it was actually kind of big room glam sort of stuff. Sure, and uh, and that's how it sounded to me, and I kind of thought like these songs don't sound that different than stuff I've heard on like a power pop playlist, you know? Sure. Absolutely. And, and I thought like, Oh, that's kind of a cool choice. I don't know in 1983 how popular that style actually was. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how many bands there were that kind of sounded like what he's supposedly playing in the movie, but I, I thought it was a fun choice. Uh, and I do like the idea that like you have a promoter who's been doing this new year's Eve party and they do a lot of different kind of music. So he would have a mixed up, bill for the new year's eve party just like the people who appreciate him and love him i i do wish that there had been more tension like there is the one scene but a, a lot more of fighting between the punks and the hippies because right. i think by 1983 that's kind of a fun idea in my brain but uh you know as far as actual songs i'll be humming later not particularly nothing like no. stuck with me where i'm like i need to find this like if i saw the soundtrack in a store for like five bucks i would definitely pick it up for funsies but it's not like something i would go questing for you know one of the things i like most about get crazy is how the threat at uh, you know the threat against the main characters in this film is never taken very seriously right it doesn't seem that interested in the fact that ed bagley and uh you know and 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 that side of the film that they're trying to like destroy the uh the, the concert venue that they want to buy it all up. It seems like that's going to be, oh, it's, you know, the snobs versus slobs type 
type deal, but it has so little interest in it and it kind of just goes away because it really is more interested in being celebratory. And I think that's something that, that you're kind of getting at and what you were saying, Liam, just the idea that it really wants to be a good time. And I think by the end, I was really kind of uh, yeah. connected with that vibe. Yeah. Jesse, over to you. You're a music fan. You're someone who likes to talk about music. What do you think about the music of Get Crazy? Well, you know, like the music was uh, fine. Like it would, I, I agree <laughs> with you guys that there was nothing particularly memorable about any of the music. Like there was sort of like pastiches of stuff. I, I thought it was funny that they kept doing the same song over and over again. Hoochie Coochie Man, <laughs> the various versions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that you know, it's like, oh, well, this is one way to save on uh, licensing fees. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that exact thing. I'm like, well, that at least simplified things. <laughs> but uh, you know, and they were all they were three very different versions of the song, so it wasn't too repetitive. In fact, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one thing that I wanted to say about McDowell in this movie is that he reminded me of a combination of Mick Jagger and Jackie Rogers Jr. from SCTV. <laughs> Sure, yeah. <laughs> he was like this uh, sexual libertine who's like actually really uh, gross looking. <laughs> like, you know, the, the aging rock star, you know? Sure, uh, absolutely. I don't know if they were totally um, commenting on what was happening to a lot of uh, 70s rock stars as they turned middle-aged in the 80s like a, a sort of David Bowie sort of uh, became a lot more commercial and corporate. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I don't think they were jumping on it too hard. But I mean, obviously he was supposed to be Mick Jagger, but his sort of uh, a little too old for this shit uh, persona reminded me a lot of Jackie Rogers Jr. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much I can trust this information from the IMDb uh, trivia. It does say that Rod Stewart and Elton John both turned down the role of Reggie Wanker. How different would this movie have been if it starred either of those two people? I can't imagine either of them in it. Yeah, actually. I know, right? It's really I difficult. Do... The other thing that I thought was interesting was that I was expecting, I knew Lou Reed was in this movie, and I yeah. had seen the end credits of the film before, because hmm. I knew that the movie ends with a solo performance by Lou Reed. <laughs> but I wasn't expecting him to be in so much of the movie. He's a, he, you remember um, the joke in Airplane of the guy who's waiting in the, in the cab? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they keep cutting back to him every 20 minutes with the meter still running. <laughs> uh, that was a very uh, clear run uh, through line to Airplane, was that they just mm-hmm. kept showing uh, Lou Reed in a cab, taking the scenic route, which included driving through Monument Valley. <laughs> like, And then at the end of the movie, you see that the taxi fare is like $12,000. <laughs> But I wasn't expecting him to have so much dialogue and to have a Lou Reed stunt double. There's a scene where he's like, he's he's sort of ad-libbing a song and he's walking across the street and he's so immersed in his own music that uh, he's almost hit by several cars. And it's a very obvious stunt double <laughs> for those Maybe parts. they use the robot from the No Money Down video. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, what? who did Lou Reed owe so much money to in 1983 that he had to be in this Avco Embassy rock and roll comedy? Like, that seemed a little bit of a step down for one of the kings of music. (laughs) But also someone who is so notoriously 
prickly, difficult right? to work with. Yeah, exactly. It's it's it, it is the most mind blowing thing about this movie to me <laughs> is not that Lou Reed is in it necessarily, but that he is playing a comedic figure <laughs> all throughout it, and it yeah. keeps going back to it. And like you said, has a surprising amount of dialogue, like good natured dialogue throughout. Very yeah. strange. Yeah, it was like was he good friends with Alan Arkush or yeah, something? Like right, like. I've seen like interviews where someone will ask an innocent question to Lou Reed and he'll say, this interview's over, fuck you, and he'll get up Absolutely. And leave. So like, how did he manage to put up with <laughs> with Get Crazy? <laughs> I, I, I wondered if it was the character, like, you know, he's playing a metaphysical folk singer. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so that's Bob Dylan, right? Does Lou yeah. Reed actually hate Bob Dylan and this is like a fuck you to him? I don't know. Quite possibly. And his name is Auden, named after W.H. Auden. Like, right, yes, And of yes. course, Bob Dylan is, uh, is thought of as a modern-day poet and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So was this movie, in fact, a big piss take on Dylan? Like, Lou Reed was really into doing it. The way that, like, Bob Dylan covered a Paul Simon song once to make fun of him. That's right. Right, yeah. <laughs> Though he says he didn't, but yeah. <laughs> but, like, even the idea that the way that he comes up with his songs is basically just whatever he's thinking about, he just says. Yeah. <laughs> that seemed like a direct kind of, like, yeah, a mockery of, of, if not Dylan, then certainly folk singers of that ilk. Yeah. The other uh, thing that I thought was funny was the uh, participation of Sparks in this film. It's too bad mm-hmm. we don't see them yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, but, it, it, I guess they only had time. To, what would, they did that movie? Um, oh shit! The disaster movie about the roller coaster. Coaster. Roller coaster. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I after saw, that they were like, maybe no more appearances. Well, I saw Roller Coaster when I was a little kid, uh, which I loved, and mm-hmm. uh, it was so weird when I got older and I realized that the guys in that art pop band Sparks were the band from Roller Coaster. <laughs> I haven't seen the uh, Edgar Wright documentary, but I asked a friend of mine, like, how much did they talk about roller coaster? And he's like, oh, just a minute or so. Yeah. And I was like, oh, do. that's too bad. I want an oral history of why they were in roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> they go into a little detail. Uh, and certainly, I've, I actually enjoyed that documentary quite a bit. Liam, rather notoriously on our podcasts, oh, you are a person who does not partake in drugs or alcohol. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah, that is correct. This movie doesn't seem to be for a person like you. This is a movie that celebrates drugs of all kinds. In fact, I was a little bit, I wouldn't say shocked. I don't know, not much shocks me these days. But I was a little surprised that this movie goes as far to be like, let's make jokes about people enjoying cocaine or having their water supply uh, <laughs> drugged. Or like they even have this, this uh, character that keeps popping up to basically save the day because he has all sorts of different uppers and downers and pills. I'm not much on the drug front myself, as you can tell by my vocabulary, Liam. What did you think about the fact that this movie is so drug positive? Oh, it just made me laugh. I mean, to me, the uh, a if I feel like eighty three. Sorry, when... Liam. I don't want to interrupt you. I just also wanted to remind you that one of the characters in this is just a living joint. Yeah, it just, <laughs> he, 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 I felt bad for him when the when the pig uh, fire inspector was trying to put him out. Like, <laughs> fuck you, pig. Let that joint live. Um, you know, like, look. Uh, uh, yes, I am not a fan of 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 Drugos, but here's the thing. Oh God! It feels like to me in 1983, that's like a good time to be making cocaine jokes. Like sure. when I'm watching it, and and my man is like the whole plane is is 
flipping around because they're all trying to do coke. <laughs> that just felt like, oh, yeah, they're very self-aware in this movie. Like, they really know what it is they're portraying. And, you know, I I, I, I don't know. Some part of me takes it as partly historical, partly silly, you know, and, and, and funny. And, not, you know, not taking it seriously. At, at some point, it would help to make to take it seriously because – I think in 1983, that's like when uh, what would become the drug war is starting to ramp up. So like rich white people making jokes about drugs is going to become a real bummer to me pretty soon. But, you know, it's 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 kind of like if, if I turn that part of my brain off and be like, OK, like let's ignore the, uh, you know, the years of destruction on the black community. Then like, yeah, it's well, kind of fun. Getting to be funny. a bit of a bummer here, Liam. I have to well, I'm saying that's the part that's a bummer for me. People enjoying themselves, Doug, is not the issue here i uh, thought that was your least favorite thing no it's not i don't give a fuck about that it, it's in fact uh, you know i don't know that this is true but i think it's true i was interviewed recently by a straight edge sort of account that talks to people who are straight edge about their history or whatever and sure. i was just really honest about how like you know i think it's i think if you are straight edge you should really be a supporter of uh decriminalization and possibly full legalization for drugs because your choice is not about state power and 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 oppressing people and uh he never published my interview doug and i think that might be why <laughs> i think that might have been why i i was censored from this from the european straight edge history account on instagram i don't know what it's actually fucking called but no let's get um, it let's 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 uh shout him out <laughs> but uh I, i've been checking it i've been checking it to be like how come my thing hasn't gone up yet so i'm i'm, I'm like you're gonna I, feel like a real dick if it comes out like before this podcast comes out. i won't feel a dick i'll be like okay good it did go up i but I don't know. I mean, it's been it's been a month, so you know maybe that's how long it takes them to post them. I don't know. Uh, Jesse, drugs, yay or nay? Well, <laughs> drugs. Uh, I'm I, I, I'm not straight edge, but I also mm. am sympathetic to people who are. Mm. Um, I have a few things to say about the drugs in this Please. movie. Well, first of all, uh, I cringe when I see sort of like naive sort of uh, celebrations of drugs like cocaine yeah. in movies. We we got a lot of this in the 80s, but where I find it most problematic when you see this kind of cocaine is cool, cocaine is funny kind of stuff in movies, especially in the early 80s, was that this was the time when we started noticing casualties yeah. of, right. of yeah. cocaine. Yeah. I in rock and say, roll, even. <laughs> in rock and roll and in entertainment. In 1981, there was a very notorious episode of Saturday Night Live that involved Lee Ving. That's right. Because Fear was the musical guest on the show that Donald Pleasance hosted. And they booked Fear because they were trying to get John Belushi to come back on the show. He agreed to make a cameo appearance on that episode if Fear were the musical guest. Apparently, they were doing heroin at 30 Rock. Mm -hmm. And the the fear trashed the stage at the end of the show i believe that if belushi appeared on the air at all that night it was very briefly and yeah he introduced them that was the one he introduced them but he, uh they had planned on doing more with belushi but he was right. too wrecked mm -hmm. so and that episode was actually pulled from syndication i i think it's available on a box set but i don't think it was ever shown ever again on i have a copy to of be, it oh, to sorry. be fair Fear didn't actually do the trashing. That right. that the crowd, trashing? they had a bunch of punks there, right? Right, right, and exactly. the punks and the punks who were there were mostly straight edge. 
that, that oh, was that was the that was the conflict between New York City and DC. So half the people there were the guys in Minor Threat and the whole DC crew, and then the other half were the members of Cro-Mags and the whole Lower East Side New York hardcore crew. And at mm-hmm. one point during the Fear performance, one of the DC guys gets on the mic and says, "New York sucks." And uh, you know the the thing is, all the DC guys they're from Georgetown. They're rich kids. They're the sons of senators and shit. And mm-hmm. all the New York City guys uh, live on the street. They're actually yeah. homeless. Like they are not ones to fuck around. And so the actual destruction started when they started fighting each other. And in <laughs> fact, uh, famously, I believe it was Ray Bees. Although you know, I don't want to snitch on anyone. Somebody from New York smashed one of the uh, TV cameras, uh, yeah. trying trying to hit one of the DC people. So uh, you know, fear was kind of like a uh, old LA dudes who just wanted to do drugs and play a show. They weren't really into wrecking anything, and famously were very angry that this happened and were did yeah. not think it was cool or punk rock at all and, and fear had i mean they weren't big new york fans anyway if i remember right. some of their songs properly <laughs> right well sorry so jesse uh, please the dc people just invited the new york people to have more people there and didn't realize it was going to turn into a fucking brawl right yeah. jesse please continue well this was only a few months before uh belushi died this yeah, was like exactly, october yeah. of 1981 and belushi died in february or march of 1982 so this was like a huge this set off a lot of alarm bells in his uh social circle like that he was uh you know openly doing heroin now and uh that he was running with a bad crowd the other ironic thing is that ed bagley jr is in this movie Mm -hmm. he had more or less wised up by the time this movie was made he was no longer doing drugs by 1983 or 82 but Mm -hmm. he was a party animal in hollywood in the 70s and he was in the movie going south with Jack Nicholson and John right. Belushi, and they did a lot of drugs when they were filming in Mexico. And Begley uh, apparently told some funny story about being drunk on the set of Battlestar Galactica. He was a party guy. He had he had sobered up by the time this movie was made. But you just see these sort of um, glimpses of how casually Hollywood and uh, youth culture took uh, drugs like cocaine. Sure. And the, and this movie was released in the wake of one of the most shocking uh, developments in uh, the cocaine sort of and drug explosion in the United States and heroin with the death of Belushi. But this was the so you know this was like the entertainment division of uh, this was the sort of uh, the idea of um, this stuff being funny and a joke. Uh, it it wasn't it was becoming increasingly less of a joke culturally. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it is something that stuck out to me in particular simply because once you hit 87, 88, you might, you know, if you were doing a movie that featured people doing cocaine, it was usually the the shorthand Less than zero that, style. Yeah. Exactly, 100%. Yeah. It wasn't funny anymore. But but it, I mean it wasn't it, technically it was never funny, but but uh, people played that stuff for laughs. So there's a naivete to get crazy in in their constant uh drugs as as sources of humor it's very self-congratulatory it's like you can tell that everybody who you know and the the executives that were behind this movie didn't take uh, the drug problem in america very seriously uh one of the things you've already referred to jesse was that fact that alan arkish was had concerns about the release of this film and they were well-founded concerns uh, he said the scam they came up with was to release it. Uh, to release it was to sell shares in it to some Wall Street tax shelter group and then put it out so it would lose money, just like in the producers. Nobody mm-hmm. saw it on purpose. It was so horrible to work so hard on something and then see it just thrown away. 
The audience that saw it didn't get it. They didn't understand how there could be a rock concert with all these different kinds of acts. My take on it, it's a movie with 3,000 punchlines but only 1,000 jokes. There's too much zaniness and not enough human comedy. It's just too bizarre. Interesting to hear Arkish kind of be down on the film generally, but I think, you know, it's been kind of redeeming, I think, to have this film now in a form that he's so happy with. Uh, He even did a feature-length documentary about the movie as a special feature for the release that came out last year where he had all the people kind of get back together and, and, and talk to them about it. I think he probably would be a little bit more positive on the tone of it now, or maybe it just has aged uh, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sticking with you, Jesse, Alan Arkish never found the Hollywood success that Joe Dante did, even though they worked together very closely. We're obviously close friends. Why do you think he was not able... I mean, he found great success on television. I mean, I don't want to discount it. He still uh, works as a teacher, I think, at, with the AFI. Why do you think he was not able to connect on a mainstream level in a way that Joe Dante was? Well, maybe that's... Maybe he uh, just uh, wanted to be a working filmmaker and not... Right. He might not have been career-oriented. He may have uh, gotten a typecast in terms of being a filmmaker from his early filmography, because it's very, uh, uh, you know, rock and roll high school uh, sets it right up. Heart sure. Beeps is a legendary bomb in yes. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, speaking of another comedian who died suddenly. That's true. <laughs> with Andy Kaufman, uh, you know, and then Get Crazy was mishandled. Uh, and I think that Arkish, in fact, found out that the fate of this movie was doomed while he was still filming it. That's right. I think that's when he became aware of the fact that this movie was just going to be thrown to the wind. And, uh, you know, it was going to be put out, but they were going to make sure that it didn't get seen by a lot of people. So that they could technically say it was released and call it a lost leader or whatever. Whatever the, the, the scheme was to make sure that... The, the bombing of this movie led to uh, somebody making money. And then I mean, Caddyshack can... 2 is, of course, a <laughs> uh, forgotten sequel. I always forget that there even was a, a sequel to Caddyshack. It was one of those sequels that came along about four years uh, after it should have come out. Yeah. Like, what was the demand for a second Caddyshack movie by Nice? Starring Jackie Mason, of all fucking yeah, people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he did... Uh, the, the, the TV movie on The Temptations, though, I believe is a good one, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, look, it's it's just a weird... It's almost strange that he was able to survive through it because if he had a heart attack making Rock and Roll High School and then Heartbeeps was this notorious disaster. This movie ended up barely getting released and then he made Caddyshack 2, which is might be one of the more reviled sequels of that era. I mean, that is a rough ride that he went through mm-hmm. in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so maybe it, maybe it disabused him of... Uh, of what he wanted to do. Maybe he realized that uh, it, it's actually a lot easier to just be a working director on episodic television. I believe that's where his career went. Liam, do you have any thoughts on the same topic? Why maybe Alan Arkish wasn't able to, to transition to mainstream uh, filmmaking like a lot of his contemporaries were? I mean, I think everything that Jesse said makes sense. I do really do think like, as much as I love it, Rock and Roll High School strikes me as a real career killer of a movie. Like if you if you can't, do something else immediately, then people are just going to expect they're they're going to think that's what you do. You know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. I guess that would be okay, but I can't imagine being like, yeah, he made a series of movies just like Rock and Roll High School, all of which are good. 
No, there's there's almost no fucking way that that would work out for somebody in my mind. So sure. I think mm-hmm. he had a tough task ahead of him post rock and roll high school. And, you know, it's not like his career ended completely, but I think it was really hard for him to do the kind of movies he wanted to do. Even talking about this movie, you know, I've seen him quoted as saying, like, he wanted to do a serious version of this movie. Yeah, that's he, right. That That's kind of one of the <laughs> famous stories about Get Crazy. It was yeah. envisioned as a serious movie. First. Yeah, that's what he wanted to do to some extent. And, like, I get that. I do think there's a core of, like, something fun but not – I don't want to say dumb because that sounds derogatory. Like, sure. you know what I mean? Like, that's that, that something not silly. Like, this is silly. And I, and I find that silliness endearing. But I can see that, like, under the surface, you could do a version of this movie that would also be fun but wouldn't feel like Airplane or, or mm-hmm. for that matter, Rock and Roll High School. Right. Well, I want to mm. say a little, uh, another, if I may do a little pop psychology on Arkush. Please. Uh, this film was originally supposed to be a semi-autobiographical script about his right, right. early years. When he was young, uh, he lived in New York, and he worked at the Fillmore East, a That's famous right. uh, music venue. And he said, I was there the day it opened as a customer, and many times after that, watching bands like you know, Big Brother, The Doors. And by the way, a John Densmore is in this movie as as the as Malcolm McDowell's drummer. That's right. And, you know, he saw Sly and the Family Stone. Four months into the Fillmore East's existence, he got a job as an usher. Then he was on the stage crew, and finally he was on the light show. So this is very clearly a personal project by him. But to get financing, it got turned into a movie that was moved over to the other side of the country, to L.A., the mindless uh, <laughs> L.A. world. And uh, the, it so something very personal for him got turned into a airplane-like comedy vehicle that he also found out towards the end of production was not going to be properly seen. Right. So maybe that disillusioned him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. I think it would, would for anyone. Um, Liam, moving back over to you for a second. Before we get into The Great Dick Miller, uh, and it is probably noticeable at this point that we haven't been talking about Dick Miller in any detail. His part in this film is very small, but we'll uh, mention him in just a moment. Liam, any other performances aside from Malcolm McDowell stick out to you in the film? I mean, I think there's a lot of like sort of fun performances that aren't uh, insanely memorable. People are there. There's there's uh, stuff that's like okay, but um, as much as I as I have fun with it, there's not really a lot of performances where I'm like, oh, you know, so and so, they were so great. It's just like, yeah, it was fun. You know, they're fun. They're doing okay. I think um, it's one of those movies that's very much like, hey, there's Robert Picardo. Hey, there's Clint Howard. Exactly, there's exactly, right. I mean, yeah, exactly. the, the, people just keep showing up throughout the movie, and I mean, there's a joy in that as well. I mean, I love Ed Begley Jr. and it's he's silly, but you wouldn't be like one of the great Ed Begley Jr. performances is Colin <laughs> Beverly. Like that's just not real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but it it is fun seeing them. I will say, reading friends who saw this live and said people clap for Paul Bartel, I do feel like Paul Bartel is sort of unleashed in this movie as a very fun person. You know what I mean? As the doctor character. Sure. I, yeah. I, I, I really liked that he was in it. And anytime I see Mary Warrenov in something, I, I yeah. love her as well. They even get that brief moment to interact in the film. Yeah, which is yeah, nice. yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're right. Like The people who stood out to me in a way where I kind of remembered, it wasn't their performances. It's just my surprise to see them. Like I was surprised to see Clint Howard. I was surprised uh, to see... Uh, uh, I was actually able to pick out, what do you call it? Uh, Linnea Quigley. You know what I mean? Sure, like, yeah, yeah. Stuff like that is fun, but it wasn't like... Oh, they're so good. Like even Daniel Stern, it's cool that he's in it, this young baby version of him, but you wouldn't be like, Oh, what a strong Daniel Stern performance. He's just like he's fine, you know? But it's no chud, you know, his his real yeah. the real crown 
you know, of his career. <laughs> it's no chud, you know. You're telling me that you didn't remember the nerd from head of the class was in this? I mean, that was fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. How about you, uh, Jesse? Any performances uh, stand out to you? So one performance that I uh, want to single out is uh, it's not so much that she's a great actor in this movie, but that, you know, it's she's uh, she's a footnote to history. Her name is <laughs> Stacy Nelkin. Absolutely. And she plays Daniel Stern's little sister. And she's she's obsessed with uh, the Lou Reed character and also the Malcolm McDowell character. She's like a, a rock rock fan, she, but she's a teenager, I suppose. I think she was no longer a teenager by the time this movie was made. But she's noteworthy because she was Woody Allen's secret teenage girlfriend in real That's life. Right. She mm-hmm. says that uh, the character in that Meryl Hemingway plays in Manhattan was based on her. She was cast in a bit part in Annie Hall that wound up on the cutting room floor, and she secretly dated him. She was 17, he was 42. She, for what it's worth, defends Woody Allen to this day. She's not one of the people that says, you know, all the things they say about Woody Allen are true, and that's noteworthy. But one other thing that's funny about Nelkin's career is that she had all these opportunities that didn't exactly pay off, and... She's in Get Crazy, which was, you know, released in 83, but she was cast in Blade Runner very early on in the production. You'll remember that um, that at one point they mentioned that six uh, replicants escaped from the off-world colony. Sure, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they, but if you watch the movie, you'll notice that there's really only uh, four. Oh, I think they say that five escaped, but there are only four in the movie. I think that's correct, yeah. She was supposed to play a Nexus 6 named Mary, but due to time and budget constraints, her part was cut before they even started production. So the road not taken for her, she might have been a replicant and a you know a different kind of cult actress. But we all remember her from Halloween 3. The Halloween 3, I was going to say. That's right. <laughs> She's now a, a, a psychotherapist or something, or a, a relationship counselor. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's a, she's a winning screen presence and I do like the last scene in the movie when, uh, the Lou Reed character finally shows up from his (laughs) $12,000 cab ride (laughs) to, to the club, to the theater and everyone's gone by this point. And then he just performs a song for her. And that's what we see over the end credits. I think that's probably the nicest musical moment in the movie. But it's happening while everyone's putting on their coat and leaving. <laughs> it's. I wonder what the process was to get Lou Reed to... I don't know if he wrote the song or if they just gave him it, the lyrics that he had he, to do. He did write the song. I, oh. I checked. Yeah, so he wrote a song for the Get Crazy soundtrack. But then... <laughs> You know, a couple. Of, this is a few years after he recorded metal machine music. You know, That's so right. he's he's got a very long and varied career. <laughs> Let us talk about Dick Miller, who plays uh, Susie. We just talked about Susie uh, just a moment ago, the uh, sister of Daniel Stern's character in this. Uh, I guess I was going to say he plays Susie's dad. He also plays, I guess, Daniel Stern's character's dad as well, though we don't see them interact. Yeah. Uh, we see him, uh, Dick Miller, alongside Jackie Joseph uh, from A Little Shop of Horrors, who we also see together in Gremlins as a couple. Mm-hmm. They play the parents. They basically talk to her very, very briefly, uh, uh, Susie, as she leaves to go to her quote-unquote friend's house, really going to the concert in the film. It is only one scene. It is delightful, I think. 25 I, seconds. I, tw- I, I got out the stopwatch. Hi, honey. Hi, Mom. Hi, 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 Hi,
party? Yeah, I'm gonna help Debbie set up the party. Oh, you're good. Well, turn around. Let's see how you look. Let's see oh. how you look. Oh. Have fun. Thanks, Have Mom. Fun. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Say hi to Debbie for me. Bye, Debbie Mom. Bye, me. Dad. Bye. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Uh, Jesse, what did you think of Dick Miller in Get Crazy? Fantastic performance. <laughs> he, I, he was fully committed to watering the lawn. In the scene. actually, I would say he's not very committed to watering <laughs> no, the lawn. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like and action, and then he hits the trigger on the on the lawn, on the uh, hose. Anyway, so he's standing there hosing the lawn waiting for Stacy Nelkin to come out of the house and she says bye I'm going to my friend's house bye honey the end <laughs> I was actually frankly expecting him to return like I thought that mom and dad were going to show up at the club because they were looking for her yeah or something considering you know like why would somebody like Dick Miller uh you know you would think that you'd want to do more with Dick Miller so maybe they did and that was cut out I have no idea it feels like a subplot right because there's this, all yeah. this build up to it. it's like oh his her parents would not let her go out to a concert this is her first concert ever so the idea that later you you know you'd duck back to them and they'd be like hey she's not really at her friend's house let's go to the venue you're exactly right but no they're in it for 25 seconds or they I mean Dick Miller's in it for 25 seconds and that is all the Dick Miller you get yeah, but I was convinced that we were going to see them at the club, that they were, and it was like, young lady kind of scene, and they didn't even do that. <laughs> he has a bigger part in Rock and Roll High School, even. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or even, least... uh, even a more painful subplot, like that he drinks the LSD-spiked water and starts uh, <laughs> dancing around. This movie is a, has a very positive portrayal of... Uh, of drugs in the sense that all the creeps in the movie become nicer people after they dose get dosed with LSD. Yeah, they 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 some of them <laughs> embrace becoming a hippie and no longer abuse animals even. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, the do- that was one of the few big laughs in the movie was when that guy punted that uh, little dog up. It's like the, the first balcony. five minutes of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> How to establish the guy's a, a mean guy? He, <laughs> he drop kicks a little doggy. I like how there's that one shot afterwards of the dog just like looking just to make sure that you're that the audience are like, oh, yeah. no, he's still OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, this movie has a pretty low body count, actually. Like even when Ed Begley and his sidekicks get blown up, we see them afterwards. Like, yeah, the, the movie doesn't want to make you think that anybody died. Yeah, even though it's it's continuously setting up dangerous situations, that, and then later you're like, oh, I guess, like the the part where they're trying to burn down with the fire in the basement, and it's yeah. like, oh my god, that's going to be a big thing. It's just like, oh no, they then they just get the hose working and they put it out. Okay, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal after all. Because <laughs> when that scene happened, all I could think of was the Great White uh, concert where everybody yes. died in this gigantic oh fire, and fireworks were set off that giant fire too, and that's that was right. played for laughs in this movie. Yeah. Not so funny a... anymore, is it, Alan Arkish? <laughs> I'd like to think he would admit as such. Liam, <laughs> your feelings on Dick Miller as Susie's dad in Get Crazy. It's fine. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a reminder for us that, like, there's going to be a lot of these roles doing yeah, this podcast. Absolutely. Where he just shows up and he's Dick Miller. And it's, it's, it's one that is intentional, right? Like, there's a couple of people who show up that we've already mentioned who, like, 
resonate for us who wouldn't have resonated in 1983. You know what I mean? Like even mm-hmm. like the star, one of the stars of the movie, Daniel Stern, doesn't mean anything in 1983 the way he means something now. That if you show this to someone of a certain age who may have missed it, they'd be like, "Oh, that guy." You know, I love Home Alone. You know what I mean, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like Dick Miller shows up and you're like, oh, "Okay, I'm somewhere safe." It's a, it, it's good. We've talked about it a bit, a, a bit before, right? It's like the secret handshake thing, just yeah, like when exactly. Paul Bartel shows exactly. up. It's like this is this. If you know, then you know why this is something that you should recognize and appreciate, and not just him being here, but also Jackie joseph there as yes, well right yes, that this is a yes, nod yes. to something you don't lose anything necessarily from not recognizing right, it right but it adds a layer yeah. yeah but is he given much to do no and i agree with jesse i was convinced they were coming back even if it was for <laughs> something quick i'm like there's no way this girl her, her whole character is i'm an innocent girl wants to go to a concert and now i'm in a bodysuit and i'm jumping at all the people i'm like parents are gonna intervene that's where this movie's going but somehow much like the drug use which feels uh both transgressive and naive uh the 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 idea that like oh i've got this little sister i'll set her loose at this drugged up rock concert and i'm sure she'll have a good time and be safe feels both um uh, uh nefarious and naive at the same time um mm-hmm. and that's what i was thinking watching it is like parents have to intervene because this girl is not safe at this fucking thing <laughs> but it all turned out okay and i think that's what the real message of get crazy is it doesn't matter if you get involved with rock music or groupies or drugs hard drugs like hard drugs like cocaine and lsd you're gonna end up okay at the end. And I think we can all agree that history has uh, proven that that was absolutely the case. Everyone turned out okay. I can't think of any examples to the contrary that we've talked about at length on this particular episode of You Don't Know Dick. (laughs) Dick Miller, there's, like you said, Liam, there's going to be movies like this where we only see him briefly. He doesn't really have the impact in this that he has even in some of the other smaller performances that we've talked about so far. But it's still all part of this cosmic gumbo, as we've talked about on the show, uh, that of his career, particularly at this time period, where it's so connected to that 70s and 60s era of Roger Corman that he is this kind of mascot that they put in a lot of these films. The, one of the things that always kind of, uh, I don't know if a noise is the right word, is the fact that he's so good, right? Like, he, this isn't just like, and even, this is something we've talked about on the Paul Bartel show, where Paul Bartel is a lot of fun, but I wouldn't necessarily call him a great actor. He just is, has a very specific kind of tone that he brings to a movie. I think Dick Miller, even though he's uh, has kind of a limited range, he's great within that range and can play that range. You could have that character and that kind of character show up and carry a good chunk of a movie, just like he does in, like, Explorers, right? Um, and so it's it's always feels like a little bit of a waste when we see him in such a small part. But hey, he had a lot of other stuff going on in the 80s, thankfully. Uh, any final thoughts, Jesse, on the movie Get Crazy from 1983? Well, you know, one thing that I love about the age that we live in right now is that crap movies are getting beautiful 2 and 4K <laughs> transfers and sure. remasters. And, uh, you know, I was... What I hear all the time about that, Jesse, is like, you're telling me Get Crazy has a 2K release and I can't get uh, uh, True Lies on Blu-ray? I know. <laughs> I'm okay with that because, you know, uh, it the randomness of the movies that get yes. restored. Like, you know, one day somebody puts out a beautiful, fully restored uh, version of Manos, The Hands of Fate. You <laughs> yeah, <know? that's> right. <laughs> like things that you would think nobody... Or, or uh, there was that porno called Bat Pussy that that's came right. out a while ago. And like... It, <laughs> It never looked that good uh, for the filmmaker 
And but so for some reason, we the consumers get to see fully remastered and restored <laughs> uh, versions of trash. <laughs> and so I'm I'm glad that I that I never saw this movie on a crappy VHS dub, which is probably how most people who have ever seen it saw it. We got to watch a pristine uh, version that was approved by the director, and I'm glad that we're getting away from these sort of this criterion mentality that you sure. have to be, you know, Wong Kar Wai to be uh, happy with your uh, your remastered version. Like that, Alan Arkush is really thrilled that his movie Get Crazy can now be seen in the the state that he wanted you to see it in the first place. And this is a movie that has been mistreated. I mean, that's mm. just the fact of the matter. And and I think that. It was owed uh, an opportunity to be appreciated in the the way that the director intended. I mean, and I'm I'm right there with you. And sometimes it does get a little funny. The movies that get the 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 royal treatment in regards to what comes out on these mm-hmm. specialty labels. But it's always it's always unique, right? You never know what to expect. And every year there's some release where it's just like that one. That one has got like a feature packed <laughs> Blu-ray. And then there's this either a new appreciation or a oh I guess that wasn't as good as I remembered it being. Liam, any final thoughts on Get Crazy? I don't know. It's it's. Oh, it's I don't know. Okay. It's. I mean, I think we've said everything. It's. It, I, for me, it was fun, and I like it as a bit of history. Um, but I don't know that like I'm I'm going to go out and start beating the drum that everyone needs to see Get Crazy immediately. You know. <laughs> if I you see think... only one movie this year, <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> you know, fuck everything, everywhere, all at once. You want to see Get Crazy. Get crazy and say goodbye to your brain. I think I actually like this movie a little bit more than the both of you. Maybe it's just because I was in the mood for it. I've been watching a lot of serious cinema lately, so something that was so extremely not serious. And and also, I find the pacing of this film is terrific. I just It just zoomed by for me. Maybe the fact that it's right around that 90-minute mark really helped as well. It just was a real pleasure for me to watch. And just knowing that everyone involved, uh, you know, felt like this movie wasn't, was, well, this movie was given short shrift, that it had an opportunity to uh, find an audience now here in 2022 and late 2021. It's just a heartening story overall, I think. Jesse Hawken, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about Get Crazy, to talk to us about Dick Miller, even his short performance here. Uh, we've talked already about the Junk Filter Podcast. Where can people find that? Where can people find you online? The Junk Filter Podcast is available wherever fine podcasts can be found. We have a Twitter account, which is Junk Filter Pod. And uh, Junk Filter is on Apple Podcasts, and it's on Spotify. I don't think that we're on SoundCloud. I haven't bothered. Maybe I should. Nobody's (laughs) asked me to do it, so I haven't done it. And you can find me uh, yelling at Marvel fans and uh, praising, uh, making crimes of the future puns at uh, my Twitter account, which is Jesse Hawken. I strongly recommend both uh, subscribing to the Junk Filter podcast as well as subscribing to Jesse on Twitter. Even if you don't agree with what he has to say, my God, you got to appreciate his willingness to say it. <laughs> yeah. We also do have a Junk Filter Patreon. And in a couple of days, I'm dropping a patron episode on Larry Clark's Bully. Ooh. The nice version of uh, how your parents don't know what you're up to. Yeah. Was yeah. Get Crazy, the scary version of your parents don't know what you're up to is Bully. Yeah, I remember. I remember watching that. And did that come up like 2000, 2001? 2001. Yeah. 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 I remember at that time it had quite an effect on me. <laughs> Maybe an episode for another day for us as well, Liam. Liam, 
Uh, Cinepunks has had some outages lately because uh, we've been uh, fooling around with technology in the background. Seems to be up and ready to go. Lots of great podcasts on there. Where can people check that and you out? Well, they should head to cinepunx.com. Uh, this podcast, a whole family of podcasts, uh, great writing, some t-shirts and stuff. Check it out. Uh, they can, of course, follow Cinepunks on social media. Same thing, cinepunx on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have a website, cinemasmorgasport.com, where you can dive into our archives and the variety of shows that we do together. What and, are some of those uh, shows, Liam? Why don't you give us a rundown? Well, we've got um, Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, about the career of Vic Diaz. We've got Joe Dawowski exploring the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky. And uh, we, of course, uh, why did my brain just die? Oh, Bartell have, Me Something Good. Bartell Me Something Good. Kane about the career of Clark I Kane. was getting there, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff, Doug. There's a lot of yeah. stuff. Uh, they can also follow us on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. And you're on there as well, Liam, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. You can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Uh, you can also check out Liam's shirt company, uh, Rough Cut Shirts. I know that, uh, unfortunately, it won't be generally available. maybe a little late at this time. But I do have to say, Liam, that uh, you have the Seventh Curse uh, shirt that is, um, I guess it has, it's going to be at an event. Is that how this works? Yeah, so it's it's a exclusive for The Brood. Uh, the Brood is a coffee shop in Chicago. Right. And so they're going to have the, the now, the, the, the first uh, chance to get some is at their screening of The Seventh Curse on Monday, uh, June uh, 27th. But if you miss that, which I'm sure a lot of people probably did listening to this because you might not live in the area or this comes out later, uh, you can still go to their website, The Brewed Coffee. Uh, check it out. They should have them up on their web store, and uh, you can get them from them. And that's uh, the shirt. The shirt is the, there's the seventh curse and a boxer's omen shirt. That is correct. They both look terrific, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I appreciate that. I'm jealous of people who get to pick those up. Uh, if you want to support our podcast, why don't you tell a friend about it? Why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? But for now, we need to wrap up the Dick Miller bag for another week. We're going to be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everyone. Good night. You know it's hard for me. I cannot use the phone. And in the shade of publicity, No relationship is born And I feel like a Hercules Who's recently been shorn But I have always loved my baby sister Pick me up at eight You'll see me on TV I know I don't look well, time's not been good to me.